Take your Bibles this morning to Joshua chapter number 8. Joshua chapter number 8. We'll be all kind of all over chapter number 7 and chapter 8. We'll only read a few verses here in the front, but we'll kind of skip back and forth throughout the sermon. I'm so thankful you're here today. Praise the Lord that God has allowed us to meet this Sunday morning. I don't think it's something, I hope it's not something I'll ever take for granted again as uh, we had times where we weren't able to meet like this. And what a wonderful thing it is to see all, uh, all of God's people here in His house this morning, ready to worship Him, ready to learn from His Word. And man, what a good day it is to be in the house of the Lord. Preacher always says, I'd rather be here than the best jail in town. And I can concur with that statement, although he probably has more experience in that area than I do. <laughs> Amen. Joshua chapter number 8. Now the, uh, the sermon this morning, the subject material is pertinent to you. Now there's different sermons. You come to the pulpit and you kind of know maybe who your target audience is. And, and by no means do we pick particular people out, but we also have a feel for the congregation. And so there's sometimes you kind of know who you're uh, directing a message towards. And, and there's maybe groups of people. For instance, I might come to the pulpit one day and I might be specifically targeting the, the faith of the younger folks here, the teenagers. I might be challenging about the will of God in their life and finding and following the will of God for their life. Although I will say that's not just something that stops when you're a teenager. That happens all the way throughout the Christian life. But today I promise you the subject material that I will cover is pertinent to you. From the young, the old, the rich, the poor, the educated and the illiterate, the subject material is something that you need to hear. Adrian Rogers, a great preacher of days gone by, used to say it like this, There's not a mother's child here today that doesn't need what I'm going to say. We all need what I'm going to say this morning. And there's a good chance that you're going to need it this week. There's a good chance you probably already needed it last week. And there's probably even even greater chance you've already needed it this morning. Today I want to talk to you about this, this subject. The right way to fail. The right way to fail. You see, in our chapter this morning, Joshua has been newly appointed the leader as Moses has not been permitted to go into the promised land. He is uh, given by God a commission and he himself has a holy ground experience very similar to what Moses experienced uh, back when he was in the wilderness. Now Joshua is the new leader and God had promised him, I will be with you as I was with my servant Moses. Although I can just imagine Joshua thought that must be a daunting task to do what Moses couldn't do in bringing the people to the promised land. He then... Once they cross over the Jordan River, he now has to face what seemingly might be his greatest task. That is to defeat Jericho, the great walled city. Some estimate the walls were some 65 feet tall. That he's going to have to lead these people with really no military training, no education in that type of thing. After 40 years of walking around in the wilderness, one thing, they had done plenty of cardio, but probably not much battle planning. And so for 40 years, he's got these people, he's got to take them into the promised land. They face Jericho and God miraculously makes the walls fall down and delivers to them the city. Now all that takes place in chapter 6. That's a chapter of great victory, a, a, a chapter of great triumph. And then in chapter 7 is a 
chapter of great defeat. And what's sad about chapter 7 is, it's a, a, an enemy that seemingly is way less daunting than the one they just defeated. See, a man by the name of Achan had done what the Lord commanded them not to do because God said, I'm going to give you Jericho, but when you go into Jericho, do not spoil it. In other words, don't take anything for yourself, for everything in Jericho. Uh, the, the sheep, the livestock, the, the, the gold, the silver, uh, good garments you might find, all of it is for me. And in a sense, it was like God was saying, I want the first fruits of the promised land. I want the first town. I want the first spoil. He says, after that, you're going to spoil a whole lot more. In fact, my whole plan is for you to go drive out all the inhabitants from the land. You can have all that, but Jericho is set apart for me. Unfortunately, in fact, it's really pretty phenomenal that so many people followed that command. But there was one. There was an Achan. And by the way, we see that theme throughout Scripture that there might be many on the same plan and on the same path, but if there's one, that can really upset God's movement in our congregation. As I want to say this this morning, if you have something against somebody in this church, if you can't get along, if you can't look at them, if you can't speak to them in a friendly manner, you might be our Achan. Grieving the Holy Spirit of God, working in our congregation, all because you have something against someone else. Maybe you have hidden sin in your life and you, you just want to get, you know, you're just, it's not hurting anybody, it's not causing any problems. My friend, if that is the case for you this morning, you may be our Achan. When there's sin in the camp, it affects the whole camp. And that's exactly what happens here as Joshua now goes to Ai, a town with little opposition. The battle seems to be in hand. In fact, he sends some spies like he had done before. And by the way, the spies of Israel are notoriously pessimistic when it comes to what they can do. And they go to Ai and they say, no, 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 we can do it. Just send two or 3,000 people. Not going to be a problem. Joshua sends the men, and the Bible teaches us that 36 men of Israel lose their lives. And Israel is running away in fear for their lives, all because they fought the battle without the Lord. Now I want to read for you just the first two verses of chapter 8. Now this is after all what I just described to you happened. Verse number 1 of Joshua 8, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Joshua... Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof, and the cattle thereof, shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. Years ago, we were in Tennessee, and we were outside my Granny B's house, and my dad said, Hey, Andrew, do you want to shoot this pistol? And I, 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 I could not have been more than four to five years old. And you say, That seems reckless. I agree. Can you believe I made it this far? 
Nonetheless, he said, you want to shoot this pistol? I said, yes, sir. So under his close supervision, he took me out into the front yard there. And by the way, it's very country setting where my granny B lives. He places a bucket upside down there in the front yard. And we back away from that bucket some distance. He says, Andrew, he hands me his coon hunting pistol, his twenty-two, and he shows me the way to handle the gun. He shows me the safety. And, and by the way, parents, if you have firearms in your house, this has nothing to do with theology. This is just personal conviction. Either get them out of reach from kids, which I think is always a good practice, but, but more importantly, teach your kids how to properly use the weapons so that something doesn't happen. But anyway, I, I, I'm getting off of theology and a little practicality here, so let's just get back to the Word of God. But nonetheless, he says, Andrew, this is the safety, this is the trigger, this is how you load it, this is the safety practices. And he says, now I want you to hit the bucket. Now, a five-gallon bucket's pretty large, and I thought to myself, this is going to be no problem. So I, being four, five, two, however old I was, I can't really remember now. Um, I was maybe an infant, to be honest with you. I'm not entirely sure. But, but I take that gun, and I put it right here, because I had watched enough Westerns to know you, you certainly have to look down the gun, you know, because they all do, right? Uh, but I'm looking down the, the gun there, and I'm aiming at the bucket, and I pull the trigger, and this gun is kind of uh, semi-automatic, and if that's terminology you don't understand, uh, the slide on the top of the gun comes back, removes the empty shell, and loads another one. And so I'm doing this, and I shoot the gun, and it comes back and hits me right in between the eyes. I'm, you know, probably still in my mother's womb at this time, and... And my friend, blood started pouring down my face. It cut me right here. In fact, if you want to come up and have a show-and-tell moment after church, you can still see the scar on my face today. Blood's flowing down. Tears are flowing down. I'm over. I am just distraught. I'm screaming. I'm crying. I'm telling my, my cruel father I want to go inside to see my mom. And you know what his words of, of, of hope and consolation were? Get back over here and hit the bucket. <laughs> so through the tears and the blood, I shot the bucket a second time and went in and curled up with my mom. Amen. <laughs> a little while after that, I was doing my entry exam to get into kindergarten at Godly Elementary. And uh, I, they take you apart from your parents, ask you some questions to see where you are uh, as far as your vocabulary and so forth. And uh, the teacher brought me out to the car. I must have passed with flying colors because I got in. Um, but anyway, uh, we, we came to the car. She opened the door and the teacher said, Miss Ginger, I just have one question. He did fine. Uh, but he told us that his father shot him. Uh, you know, as strange and crazy as my raising was, one thing my dad taught me, it's that you don't give up just because you fail. There's a verse in the Bible that says this in Proverbs. It says, uh, a good, a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Now we could preach a sermon from that verse and I will quickly for you. Here's what we learn from that verse. We learn one, number one, good men fall. Good men fall. Good men make mistakes. 
In fact, if you make a mistake, listen to me, you join a long line of really godly people in the Word of God who made a mistake. We learn not only that good men fall, we learn that good men fall repeatedly. A just man falleth seven times. Good men fall repeatedly. Failure is a part of our human condition. Good men fall. Good men fall repeatedly. But here's the third thing we learn. Good men fall repeatedly, but not permanently. For a just man riseth up again. Today I want to take a look at a just man, a good man in Scripture who made a mistake, who suffered a catastrophic failure, but would not allow that failure to define him. Number one this morning, in three practical ways that we can fail the right way. Number one, we must discern the cause of our failure. Discern the cause of our failure. What was different about the battle at Jericho and the battle at Ai? Now there's some things I want you to take note of. In chapter number 7, verse number 3, here's one thing that was different. Joshua has sent the men to spy out the land. In verse number 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. In verse number 3, And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, "Eh, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but... Few. Here's one thing that we often make a mistake with. Number one is present in our life, most of our lives, pride. Just a few days ago, they're battling Jericho and it seems so unbelievable and unrealistic that they could defeat them. They're like, there's no possible way. Now they got one battle in their back pocket and they say, you know what, we got this, no problem. Unfortunately, most of our greatest failures come on the heels of some of our most wonderful successes. We get filled with pride. We get puffed up a little bit. And and we say, well, I've got this. I can handle this. Unfortunately, we see that throughout time and time again in Scripture. Samson was a man whose life was defined by victory. And eventually ended in great defeat. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean, you take a look at Samson's life. Right from the introduction, we are, we are told that he comes against a young lion and in his strength provided by, by the Lord, he defeats the lion. We're told later on that, that uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, Philistines are coming to uh, get him and the Bible teaches us that he takes the jawbone of a donkey and slays a thousand of them. Later on, he's in a, 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 a place in Gaza and uh, they set up a kind of an a ambush point and he's so strong and so powerful that he takes the gates of the city, walks up. I mean, that's some squat power there. He takes the gates, walks up the hill and drops them, these iron gates. He just says, now you guys got to get them back, right? That, how many of us like our friends that move all the time? Now you, we get the piano one time, we take it to the next place. That's what Samson did. He took it up to the mountain and said, here, now y'all got to get it down. Samson's life is defined by victory and ultimately ends in defeat. Why? Because as he cozies up to Delilah, even when his strength was gone, he said, I will go out as at other times before. What, what, What is he saying? He's saying, oh, I always win. I always win. That's what I do. I I have power. I have strength. No, Samson, you're not going to win this time. 
The Bible teaches us that pride is truly one of the things that God hates the most. It's what calls Satan's fall from heaven. In fact, Satan being lifted up in pride said five I wills. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 14, he says, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also in the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. I, I, I. You've heard it said there's no I in team, that's for sure, but there's absolutely one right smack dab in the middle of pride. I, it's what caused Adam and Eve to fall in the garden. Satan sent the same lure that he fell for, and it was this, you can be like him. You'll know good and evil, and God doesn't want you to know good and evil. God doesn't want you to be like him. And Eve took the bait. Why? Because her heart was filled with pride. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction. In fact, uh, as the psalmist recalls the prideful fool, here is his words to them. He says, Surely thou, meaning God, didst set them in slippery places. What does he mean by that? He's saying, if your heart is filled with pride, it is only a matter of time until you slip and fall. Pride lifts us up. And by the way, pride is not always some huge rebellious act. Pride often begins very subtly. You know, like just a morning with coffee but no Bible. A morning without a prayer to say, God, today I commit my life to you and without you I cannot walk this path that you've asked me to walk. Father, help me. Oftentimes it's just a small, uh, a small moment in time where we say, I'm okay by myself. I'm self-sufficient and of myself. Uh, someone once said that pride is a declaration of our independence from God. Lord, help us. Lord, every day I need Christ to lead me. Every day I need His Spirit to fill me. Every day I need God's power. And it's the days that I choose to reject His power that I surely will fall. Pride fills our lives. And oftentimes it is one of the reasons for our failure. But secondly, not only pride, but secondly, I want you to see prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is is the case in Joshua's life. Chapter uh, Chapter 7, verse 10 After the defeat, they've returned and told Joshua the report. And here's Joshua's reaction. I think it's a good reaction. He goes to the Lord. In verse 6, he rinsed his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until eventide. He and the elders of Israel put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God. What does Joshua do? Well, after his failure, he goes to the Lord in prayer. That's a good reaction Notice verse number 10. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? Israel hath sinned. What is God saying? He's saying, Joshua, this was a prayer that should have been prayed days ago. Joshua, why are you just coming to me now? Get up off your face. Don't act like prayer is important to you now. Don't come to me now. Do you believe, I I personally believe with all my heart, that God would have told Joshua that sin was present in the camp if Joshua had gone to God before he took Ai. 
I absolutely believe it was not God hiding this from him. It was not God wanting him to fail. It was Joshua chose in his pride and in his wisdom and in the advice and counsel of the spies. He said, we can do the small things. I don't need prayer. The days we choose to not pray are the days we are bound for failure. You know what I think? I think God is willing. Sometimes we think that prayers have to be these long and lengthy and elaborate things. I mean, if it hasn't got words with six syllables, God's probably not even going to hear it. But I believe with all my heart that God is ready and waiting to answer every prayer of the person who submits to Him. doesn't matter how short, how, how exquisite, how profound. No, no, no. The short, simple prayers of a surrendered heart are more effective than the lengthy, elaborate prayers of somebody who's not going to do what God says anyway. Amen. Prayerlessness. You say, Brother Andrew, I pray three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and supper. Amen. You're very much like Daniel. I commend you for your faith. And sadly enough, a lot of times we pray breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we do it with half a bite of food in our mouth. That is our passion of prayer. We forget it until we got to swallow. It's like the Holy Spirit says, hey, come on, just at least a little bit. What a shame. Prayerlessness, my friend. We cannot live this life without the Lord. And yet oftentimes we head straight into battle without ever asking for His assistance. When my wife and I first met, we weren't wife and husband back then. We were just boyfriend and girlfriend. I remember uh, we had a three-week-long vacation from each other shortly after we had met, though she was like super into me, and I was just like kind of, you know, into her a little bit. And over that three-week time period, we were uh, calling each other back and forth, and I'll be dating myself a little bit here. Now everybody has unlimited plans. Back then, every plan worked off minutes. Right? You had 800 anytime minutes, and a lot of the carriers had AT&T to AT&T was free, but if you went AT&T to Verizon, it wasn't free. And, and then they had the nights and weekends minutes. And so during this three-week-long Chris, Christmas vacation, my wife and I were on the phone constantly, but we figured out that we're talking a lot. We probably need to be smart about this deal. So we took advantage of the nights and weekends thing. And oftentimes I would call her at like 8 o'clock and... Uh, we would just talk, honestly, all night long. It was, you know, we, we haven't talked since, but we were really talking a lot then. And uh, the, the month comes and goes. We're back at Bible college, and my parents call me, and her parents call her, and they say, did you know we have an $800 phone bill this year? What? $800. Has mom been talking on the phone more than normal? Or I guess what had happened is we had gotten mixed up on time changes and time zones. And by the way, if you call it 759, it does not count as nights and weekends. Though you may talk eight hours after eight o'clock, it does not matter. We got mixed up in all that. And by the way, the reason we wanted to talk was because we wanted to know each other. We wanted to learn about each other. We were so fascinated and interested about one another that we wanted to be on the phone together. Did you use up any of your carryover minutes last month in your prayer life? If we were to able to pull up a report of how many minutes you spent talking to the Lord, 
would it even threaten the full minutes of your contract? I thought about it this way. What if you got paid a salary based upon how much time you talk to the Lord this month? What might our meals be like? Would they be more like, you know, dollar menu or outback? Sadly enough, we often declare our independence from God when we fail to ever go to Him and say, Lord, yeah, we go to Him about the big stuff. We say, Lord, I need you when we're purchasing this house. Lord, I need you. Help us to find a good car, car deal. Lord, help us as we decide where to put our kids and how to raise our kids. But it's the little things. This was a little battle, not a big battle. And Joshua lost all the same. The first way that we can ensure we are uh, failing the right way is we can discern the cause of our failure. It's been said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the different result. My friend, do not do the same thing because it will lead to the same result. Discern the cause of our failure. Secondly, decide upon a change moving forward. Decide upon a change moving forward. Notice there is a diligent search taking place here in chapter number 7, verse 16. God has told Joshua, Joshua, you've got to get the sin out of the camp. You've got to remove it. And so here's what takes place in verse number 16. Uh, 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 this is Joshua obeying the Lord. Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah. And he took the family of Zerhites. And he brought the family of the Zerhites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man. And Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel. Make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. There's a diligent search here that takes place. As Joshua is trying to make a change, I mean, they've got to go through AI anyway. They've got, to get, they've got to win this battle. So here's what Joshua does. He follows the Lord and the Lord says, Joshua, I'm going to bring all of Israel in front of you. Can you imagine the entire nation of Israel? We don't know precisely how many people there are. We know that there's a census taken just before they cross over the Jordan River into Jericho. Uh, and, and that census is about 601,000 armed men above 20 years old. So if you were able to fight, if you were battle ready, there were 600,000 of those. So, you know, you could extrapolate that however you want. However, many women compared to that. You also have the elderly that were not battle ready. You also have the children. So I think generously or or, or conservatively, we could say at least over a million people. At least. And now a million plus people stand out in front of Joshua. And God says, we're going to bring them all there. And then I'm going to point out which one needs to go and which one needs to stay. They bring all of Israel and God somehow informs uh, uh, Joshua. Now it's the tribe of Judah. So we've got a, a twelfth down. So 11 of the tribes leave. Now it's just the tribe of Judah. And God somehow informs Joshua that it's the, the sons of Z, uh, Zabdi. And then the sons of Zarhite. 
And they go through all this, and it's like this, this scriptural game of guess who. You know that game where it's like, does he have glasses? And is he bald? You know, we do all that. Uh, and, and that's kind of what it's like. They're going through. They eventually go from all of Israel down to this household, down to this family, down to this man. And Joshua looks at Achan. Just think with me. Sometimes we read scripture and imagine it happened at the pace we read. How long must it have taken to get through a million plus people on this day? And why did it take so long? You know, this is not original, but uh, Brother Gillespie at youth camp, when he was preaching to us, he mentioned this. This is maybe one of the reasons. Maybe God went through this whole process so that Achan would have a chance to repent. I mean, he knew it was narrowing down, and it was narrowing down, and it was getting closer and closer. The noose was getting tighter and tighter, so to speak. And maybe God was going through all this, hoping that Achan would come forth and say, Lord, it was me, instead of the Lord having to say, it was him. Well, that's one way to look at it. Perhaps that is the case. And by the way, maybe today you have sin in your life, and you feel the noose getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Slowly but surely you realize you're not able to do it as freely and openly as you used to anymore. And you feel like it's catching up to you. Your family's taking notice now more than ever. It's starting to affect your relationships. Man, it's a lot better if you come to God than God having to come to you. But maybe the reason that all this takes place... The reason that this million plus people has to be narrowed down to one of the tribes and then one of the tribes down to one of the major households and one of the clans and then down to a single household and then eventually a man is because God was teaching you and I how thorough the search in our own heart must be so that we can ensure we do not have sin in our own life. Sometimes we get a little prideful and a little deceptive. And we are, we are so much better at seeing the problems in everybody else's life besides our own. We say, yeah, they're obviously living in sin. But oftentimes, I think if we'd go to the Lord and like the psalmist prayed, try me, O Lord. Search me and see if there be any wicked way in me. I think if we would go to God, He might point out to us things that other people aren't able to see. You know, like a spirit of anger. Really quick to fly off the handle. The Bible says, The wrath of man worketh not the uh, righteousness of God. Your anger doesn't please God. A quick-tempered man is not one that demonstrates a life of following Christ. Maybe we've got envy in our hearts. Man, the Lord looks at envy and says, Oh, you don't think I've given you enough? Is what I've given you not enough to please you? You look at your Creator and say, God, I deserve more than you've given. Envy. And there's all sorts of things. Maybe you have a bitterness about something that happened a long time ago. You know what bitterness is? Bitterness is a poison that affects only the vessel it sits in. Nobody else even notices. Now, they may notice you have a bad attitude about life, but it's when we start to go to God and say, God, thoroughly search me. Go all the way to the core. Go deeper than I've ever been able to go in my own life. And by the way, the Bible says your heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That means you don't even know it. And that's why we must say, God, help me. 
Try me. Go all the way through. Go thorough. Go down to the core. Because thou desirest truth in the inward parts. God desires a wholehearted commitment to Him. Sometimes we take our pet sins and we're not willing to go all the way to the bottom so that God might unearth the very root of the problem. There's a diligent search here, but I want you to see there is a decisive action. Verse number 24, notice what takes place. Achan comes forward. He says, yeah, I I took uh, 200 shekels of gold. I I took a wedge of, of gold. I took a goodly Babylonian garment. In verse number 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran into the tent. Behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. And they took uh, them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his asses, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Now, to the 21st century American Christian, we say, wow, that's a little extreme. I mean, why did he have to go all the way there? That's, that's pretty, pretty hard to, to stomach. After just taking all of Israel through this whole grand search, you don't think everybody, when standing in line before Joshua, saying, you have any idea what this is about? Yeah, it's about that battle we just lost. You don't think maybe there was some rumor mill going around everybody? And now Joshua comes down to Achan and everybody looks at Achan and said, He did what? The one rule was we couldn't take anything from Jericho. He did what? And now Joshua must take Achan as an example for the people of how sin affects everyone. And it must be dealt with severely. You say, this is Old Testament stuff, Brother Andrew. We don't want any part of this. There's no way we do this. No, what has happened is our culture has so conditioned us to the presence of sin, we have become comfortable with it. What started as I Love Lucy pushing beds together now is homosexual men kissing on my television in commercial breaks. You say, Brother Andrew, don't go there. Listen, we are conditioned to it. We accept it as commonplace. It's no big deal for us for it to be on our TV. And because of that, it has spilled over into our lives. Now sin is not really a problem. It's just an issue we all deal with. God's plan for you is for you to be an overcomer, a conqueror in Jesus Christ. Not somebody who lives in bondage because you have been brought out of that bondage. All things are passed away. Become old. All things are become new. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. Sin shall have no dominion in your life. Then why? Why is it so common in our lives? We've accepted it. And what we must do is like Joshua, we must severely unearth the problem and deal with it harshly. Get rid of it. Sin only destroys. You say, Brother Andrew, my sin's not hurting anybody else. There is no such thing as a victimless crime. Oh, it's hurting you, it's hurting your family. It's hurting this church. It's hurting you. If sin is present in your life, get rid of it, Christian. It has no place in the life of a Christian. The Spirit of God wants to fill you so that those things don't. 
What a shame it is when we just accept the realities of our culture and say, well, I've got to live amongst it, so I might as well get a little of it. What a crying shame that Jesus has made no bigger impact in our life than just to say, well, I'm kind of living amongst them, so i kind of got to be like them. Be different. Because our God is bigger than the God of this world. And any time we yield our members as instruments to sin, we are saying, I will serve the God of this world more than I will serve the God of the cross. What a shame. We must decide upon a change moving forward. Some of you have been dealing with sin, habitual sin for so long. You say, Brother Andrew, I'm in control of it. Brother Andrew, I've got a handle on it. I can do it if I ever choose not to. Then why don't you? If you want to be a successful failure, you must change the thing moving forward. If Joshua had gone and fought the battle of Ai in the same condition he did before, guess what? The result would have been the same. They would have lost. If we're, going to be, if we're going to fail the right way, we must discern the cause of failure. We must decide upon a change moving forward. And number three, we must discover the conquest in the future. Notice in verse number one of chapter eight. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. I cannot imagine... What those words must have meant to Joshua. If you know anything about the book of Joshua, you know what I'm talking about. Because in chapter 1, before Joshua's failure, before he messed up, before he lost 36 men because of his failure, God told him, only be thou strong and of a good courage. Be thou not afraid, neither be dismayed. Chapter 1. That's when he's just taken over. That's when his heart is right with God. That's when he's saying, God, I can't lead this people. I need you to help me. And God says, Joshua, I will be with you like I was with Moses. Be not afraid. Be strong and of a good courage. Neither be thou dismayed. And now after his failure, the first word God has for him is this. Joshua, fear not, neither Be thou dismayed. What is this? This is a return to the same promise he gave him in chapter 1. He says, Joshua, I know you messed up, but I'll give you the same promise again. Aren't you glad there's no probationary period for God's grace? Anytime you want to come back to God, God is waiting and ready to receive you. The Bible teaches us of a prodigal son who goes to a distant country. He's sitting in a hog pen and he says, when he finally comes to himself, he says, I will go back and I'll return to my father's house and I will be like one of his hired servants. I'll just serve there at dad's house because I know serving him is better than living for the world. And so he goes back home, he gets down the road and the father meets him and he starts the spill. Lord, I, uh, father, I am not worthy to be one of, the, uh, one of your sons. I will be as one of your hired servants. And the father interrupts him and he says, Says, kill the fatted calf for this my son which was dead is now alive he has returned home see that's the way God accepts us back it's funny first John chapter number two says this it says my little children these things write I unto you that ye sin not 
Well, that's a pretty high standard. We can't sin. That makes sense. I mean, I'm a child of God. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. I'm, I'm a believer. I ought not sin. I ought not fail. I ought not mess up. Here's the very next phrase. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hey, everybody, I'm writing to you so you don't sin. But when you do sin, Jesus Christ is waiting and ready to receive you again. The book of 1 John again says it like this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, God does not expect perfection. That was only achievable through His Son on the cross of Calvary. There is no way you could be perfect. But He says, when you fail, I will set you back up in the same place you fell from. Wow. Before Joshua lost all these people in war, before he made a prayerless and a prideful decision, God says, "Uh, Joshua, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. Afterward, here's what he says. Joshua, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. The same God I was in chapter 1 is the same God I am now. You've made a whole lot of mistakes between now and then, but I am the same. Joshua discovered a comforting message, but I want you to see finally a consulted mission. Here was the difference, verse number 2, one of the differences at least. God says to Joshua, Thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. In the same way that God had given Joshua a very unique plan to go into Jericho and march around the city 13 times and and to blow the horns and the people were to be silent and then they were to shout at the right time. That's a very unique battle strategy, but it was a God-given strategy. Now in verse number 2, God says, Joshua, you're going to go in, you're going to fight against them, you're going to take all the people, that's one big difference than before, uh, but you're going to take all the people, but instead of just going on and fighting them full frontal, you're going to send some men behind and set an ambush for the city. That's exactly what takes place. Joshua takes 30,000 men. At night time, they sneak around the city, they go behind the city, and they lie in wait, waiting for the battle to be set in array. Joshua takes the rest of the army, let's just guess it, at about 570,000 men. They stand against Ai. Ai starts to shoot some arrows, fling some spears. And uh, Joshua says, surrender! They run out of the city and guess what? Ai does exactly what they did before. They say, well, we've got them on the run again, fellas. Let's go get them. All the warriors of Ai leave, follow after Joshua. And now 30,000 men walk into the city like they own it. The first plan was man-made. The second plan was God-ordained. Are you tired of failing? Stop living according to the plans of men. And start accepting the plan of God in your life. Seek strength and victory through Him. And not through your endurance. Not through your discipline. Not through your regimented structure. No, my friend... Victory in the Christian life is only achievable as we follow God in victory. A 67-year-old Thomas Edison, on December 9th, 1913, I believe, was 
told one evening, was awakened at his household and told that his entire Labrador, uh, laboratory was on fire. It was burning at about 5.29 p.m. 250 employees that were working there at the laboratory, uh, uh, an explosion took place and those 250 people evacuated the facility and they watched Thomas Edison's facility go up in flames. The Washington Post estimated the entire laboratory facility to be worth about $7 million and only about $2 million was covered under insurance. When Thomas Edison and his wife got the news, they ran to the site and watched the, all their hard work and all the records and all the research just go up in flames. He watched as the firefighters fought the raging blaze. He watched as they slowly but surely got it under control. And just a short time after midnight, they finally had put out the fire. Somebody asked Thomas Edison shortly after all of this took place. They said, well, what do you think about all this? I mean, what are you going to do? He responded by saying, there is value in disaster. All our mistakes are burnt up. Now we can start anew. There is value in disaster. All of our mistakes are burnt up. And now we can start anew. And starting anew is what he did. In fact, two days later, he finalized plans on a uh, light. as three million candle power, which actually competes with most of our modern lights today. Three million candle power, and it was battery powered. So while he stood watching the flames burn up his facility, he noticed how the firefighters were encumbered by the darkness. And they had no ability to see. And so he designed this light and this battery-powered mechanism so that they might have light. The, the, the beam of this light could be seen from miles away. What, what Thomas Edison knew and what he did was, there is value in disaster. All the mistakes are burned up and we can start anew. The way to be a right failure or the, well, the way to fail the right way is to never let it be final. Never let it be final. That's what uh, one commentator said. He said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to move forward. But as we move forward, let us set a different course. Because if we do the same thing we did before, we are bound to fail the same way. Instead of following our strength, our plans, may we follow after God and seek His will for our life.